Amen. So we are going to be in Colossians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. This last week, my wife and I got to go to a friend's house to go have dinner. And while we were there, we ate, we talked, we had fun, and we shared stories about our upbringing. And one of them, the wife, was sharing her story, that she was raised in a very, very conservative, very, very traditional household and community. Very traditional, to where there was this kind of um, expectation amongst all the members of the community on what people can wear, on what people can say, on what they can eat or not drink, what they can um, participate in, whether or not they can have tattoos, which is obviously a no. Um, Men can't have piercings. And I didn't even know this was unique. I hadn't heard this one. Swimsuits are not allowed. That you have to wear, if you're a man, a t-shirt when you're swimming. And if you're a woman, a swimming dress, which sounds very dangerous, but that's their options. And so she was sharing all that with me. And what's interesting is a lot of those things, they start really good. Like it's a group of people who at one point generations ago said, hey, we want to raise our kids in an environment where they're promoted to just know Jesus. And so we can get away from the world and its distractions and we could just focus on the family. And so we're going to exclude things that we don't want, influences from the world, so we can just focus on the Lord. And then as generations pass, the heart gets missed and it becomes about the law and the regulations and it shifts instead of being, hey, we're Christians so we do this, it's we do this so we're Christians. This is what makes us saved. This is what makes us important. This is what makes us significant. And if you don't do these things, then I don't know if you're saved. And I don't know if you can be a part of this family. And I don't know if we can keep talking to you. It becomes pretty brutal. It's a system that I wouldn't be able to be a part of. I mean, I've got tattoos. I got my ears pierced when I was in high school and they became gauges. They got kind of big, so now they'll never really heal. I had my nose pierced. And uh, it was really just to see what my dad would do. And he took it out that evening. So it was a quick experiment. It was in and out. You know, and I, I feel like you guys have gotten to know me and we've built a little bit of rapport. So I just want to be honest with you. I, I, I want to, if I can be, just be honest with you. I've been to the Grand Canyon. Have you guys been to the Grand Canyon? It's amazing. And I just took my family to the coast, and we went out to the river, and it was beautiful. There was no smoke. There was blue sky. We were having a great time. And there's a lot of people who say that when they are in nature, that's when they feel closest to God. And I'll say out in the river, there was, there was moments in my head, all I can think of is, God, you're so good to me. Oh, I'm a sinner, and you're just blessing me. I can't believe how you're so good to me. God, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And it was not the river. And it was not the mountains is that I was there with my family and my wife was in a swimsuit. I'm just saying, I think any system that bans swimsuits is asking for marriage problems. It's not healthy for anybody. Can the husband say amen? (laughs) Oh, you're leaving me hanging. (laughs) No, so it reminds me of this story because it's so, it happens so quickly for people who are well-intended, people who love the Lord for things to shift where it becomes, you miss the heart of Jesus and you become all about the laws. In, in the Old Testament, you have this perfect illustration. It's in 1 Samuel where the Israelites are at war with a group called the Philistines. And when they're at war, they, they're losing the battle and they go, what should we do? Well, you and I know the answer is we'll go to God. 
Go talk to God because you're God's people. And they go, I know what we do. Let's go get the, this box that we have. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's all good things that are in there. It's got the actual law. It's got the Ten Commandments in there. It's got the, the staff that budded. It's got the manna that fell from heaven that they fed themselves with in the desert. All good things. It's the Ark of the Covenant. And they bring it out to battle. And here's the problem. They say, this is what will save us. And God goes, oh, let's see how that plays out. It doesn't play out very well. And they get spanked. And the people come back from the battle. And they go, why did God abandon us? And God's like, well, you wanted to do your thing. You thought this box would save you. And so Paul, right now, he's going through a list of things because there's this system that it can creep into anything. It creeped into Judaism in 1 Samuel. It creeps into Christian homes today where we start to add things to Jesus. Like when you get saved, it's just Jesus. But then there's this idea that that's just junior varsity and you can become a varsity Christian by doing extra things, whether you don't eat certain things or what you participate in or don't participate in can make you a better believer, a better Christian. And, and you start trying to add to your salvation. Whenever you add to Jesus, it, it subtracts. I think sometimes God just goes, well, let's see how that is. If that, that'll save you. All right, have fun. It doesn't ever work out. It doesn't ever play out well. So Paul, he's writing a letter right now to the Colossians. And he previously sent out a letter to the Galatians where he's tackling the same idea. The Galatians have really fallen for, um, okay, we need to go back to circumcision. We need to go back to following the Torah because we have Jesus plus this. And right here, Paul's trying to get ahead of it. Hey, you have people coming to town who are telling you you need to add things to your salvation. Back up, listen to this. Don't go down that path. So here's Colossians chapter two. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He writes this for three things. He says, I'm writing this that you may be encouraged be encouraged that because we have a good high priest, that you don't need anything else to boldly approach the throne of God, that you're able to come before God in your time of need. It's not in your best time. It's not when you have everything together. It's not when your life is totally clean and your marriage is going great and your kids are all being obedient and the house is totally tidy. It's in your time of need. You can boldly approach God and say, hey, I need help. I have wrecked my life. I have messed up. I'm in dire need, God. I need your... It's not that you need to get clean and get better and get pure and do these rituals before you can come to God. Is that now you and I can boldly approach our king because we have Jesus who's given us access. It's not something you've earned. If you've earned something, you can lose it. Like if you work out of business for years and years and years and years and they tell you, hey, down the road, there's a huge bonus coming but then you do something to lose your job, that bonus is never coming. 
But if you're gifted something, you can refuse the gift, but nothing can ever take it away. You and I have received the gift of salvation. People who say, I believe Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. We get to boldly approach the throne of God, not because of anything we've done. And there's no tattoo you can get that could ever take it away. There's no amount of piercings that could ever take away your salvation. There's nothing you can do that will ever make it so that you can't come to God anymore because your position has changed. Now God is your father and you get to come to him just like you could approach your earthly father. Hey dad, I need help. How many dads, that's the number one thing you hear. Dad, I need help. Okay. And is there ever a point where you just go, no, I'm done helping you? Sometimes. God doesn't though. God will always say, okay, I've been waiting for you to come to me. God is always eagerly waiting to accept and to help his people when they come to him. So we should be encouraged. Second, he writes to remind them, to assure them that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of God's mystery are hidden in Christ. That a lot of people will go to the Old Testament and use fractions of verses to say, oh, this is, this is something God's doing. This is what you got to look out for. It's what all cults do. Oh, this new revelation has been given and come follow me and, you, and you'll see what God is doing. And people fall for that. What you and I need to know is all of the wisdom, all of the knowledge is hidden in Christ. He unlocks everything. It's all about him. It's all through him. It's all for him. It's all pointing us to Jesus. And if it's pointing you to anybody else, you've made a mistake. You need to back up. No, it's all about Jesus. There's no secret hidden in the Bible that's greater than Jesus. He's the deep end of theology. He's the deep end of the Bible. And so he says in verse six, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So he says, walk in Jesus, be rooted up in him and abound in thanksgiving. How did you receive Jesus? Baptism? Some people say baptism, that's how you receive Jesus. There are some people like the man on the cross who is standing next to Jesus and says, Jesus, don't forget me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly today, you'll be with me in paradise. So it's not baptism that saves you. That'd be like Jesus plus. That'd be one more thing. No, what how you got saved is you, it was free. You, you freely accepted that gift. And so how do you continue to walk in Jesus? It's freeing. It's not that it's not this constant. Oh man, I hope I did the right things today. I hope I was truly pure in all of my thoughts. I hope I was generous without hoping these, these negative, these other motives that maybe things will come back good to me. Oh, I hope I didn't look lustfully at that person. There's not this, oh shoot, was there fish in that thing that I ate because the Torah says I can't eat fish. It's not like gluten. You know, it's, <laughs> sorry, I just spent the weekend with a gluten-free person. So that was in my head. It's not this, we have to be constantly worried about all the things of, did I do the right thing? Did I do the wrong thing? It's, we continue to walk in Jesus in freedom, but how do you know that the direction you're heading is right, is what God actually want for you, wants for you? It's the second thing. He says to be rooted. Rooted, rooted reminds me of Psalm chapter one. He says, the man who delights in the law of the Lord is like a tree 
with really deep roots, that it wields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. That people who search God's word, who know it's all about Jesus, you get so much depth out of it that you can dig down deep, deep roots to where even when there's moments of dryness, when the streams are all dried up, your roots are deep enough to hit deep water. And that when struggles come and when strife come and pain comes, you know, no, I know who my God is. And even though it feels like he's absent, even though I can't see what he's doing, I know who my God is and I can trust him. You know that when the enemy comes with lies to tell you that you're not good enough, to tell you that you failed, to tell you that that thing you did was so wrong and that relationship will never be repaired, you know, no, I have a God who can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. I serve the God of all hope. I don't have to listen to that. I can trust in who my king is. I can, I can walk freely in Jesus because I'm rooted in him. So he says, walk as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. God's people consistently throughout the entire Bible is supposed to be marked by one thing, and it's joy. We're supposed to be just the most joyful people. We're supposed to be just so irresistibly attractive in the way that we handle everything in life because we know everything's going to be fine. Did you know that everything's going to be fine? Like with COVID and with craziness and with whatever's going on in the school system, everything's going to be fine. How do you know that? Jesus, it's the resurrection. It's the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, promises you and me, no matter what's happening here today, everything's going to be fine. Can't you face things so much differently like that? If you believe the worst thing that could ever happen to you on this earth, the thing that everyone is so afraid of right now is to die. If you believe that death is your victory, that death is where Jesus was victorious and made his kingdom come here on earth in full force, empowering you and me to spread the gospel. If that's the worst thing that could ever happen is our victory. What are we afraid of? Oh my goodness, nothing. How can we not just be constantly joyful people? That's what Paul is saying. One of my favorite things about Paul is how funny he is. And this next verse, I think, is really, really, really funny. So here's what he writes. Verse eight, and it's, it's missed in the English, so we'll go back. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So he's got this phrase in here. It's kind of like if you grew up in the valley or went to any Calvary chapel, you've probably heard the name John Corson. Now imagine that for some reason, there was a person who did not like John Corson. Like when, when things were going great at Applegate, just it's, it's in his heyday, it's just people are getting saved and there's someone who doesn't like it, they might write something clever where they would say, don't follow John, he'll lead you off the Corson, right? Or don't go there, stay the course, son. Like something like, that sounds like John Corson, right? But there'd be like this pun in it. In the Old Testament, you might do something like that, clever, that's easy to repeat. Hey, don't do what they're doing and throw a little bit of a pun in it to let you know. So I had Johnny prepare this slide because this, this phrase, takes you captive, looks like this. And that last word looks and sounds a whole lot like synagogue, doesn't it? 
So he kind of throws this, this, this phrase, takes you captive. Every theologian, every person who studies would says, that's strangely placed. That doesn't quite fit. He does it because it's a pun. He's saying, hey, make sure that no one takes you captive by their philosophies or their empty deceit, because there's this issue at the synagogue where the, the Jews, they opposed Jesus and his reign, his claim as being king. So they said, hey, you need to come back to us. You guys need to be the Gentiles who are getting saved. If you're going to be God's people, there are things you have to do. You have to get circumcised. You can't eat these things. You can't do these things. In order to be considered one of God's people, there's all these regulations and you're Gentile. You're not one of God's people. He's saying that's deceit. That's not true. The moment that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, every moment then on that Judaism denied their king, they're living in deceit. Every moment from then on. They're Messianic Jews. Those are people who receive their king as Jesus. But from then on, they've denied Jesus. They've denied their king. And a lot of the Bible man, you're, you're missing the key parts. You're missing the king that unlocks all the truth to it. You've got so much things that point you straight to this guy, but it's so hard. It'd be so hard for someone in the synagogue to be like, hold on. You believe there's this dude from Nazareth who had 12 buddies and they all stunk and there was a trial and he was a carpenter for a while. Then he became a pastor and then they killed him in three years of him being a pastor. And you think that's God. Like, so there's this little bit of like, oh, maybe that sounds, maybe that sounds like it's the, it's the, the, it's the philosophy of it. It's the, man, maybe that doesn't make sense. Well, that's what happened. That's what you and I know happened. And Jesus proved it by raising from the dead, walking around for 40 days, showing himself to 500 people doing miracles and saying that he's God. But there's this, the synagogues are saying, hey, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so Paul is saying, hey, don't go hang out with those people. You don't need to go over there and hear that deceit, hear those philosophies. You can stay away from that group because all they're going to do is they're going to drag you down. They're going to spin your wheels. It's, it's not going to work out. Rules for the rules, rules for the sake of rules are just silly. And that's all that they, they wanted. So verse nine says, for in him, for in Jesus, this is one of the most fantastic verses for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Anyone who says that the Bible does not claim Jesus is God hasn't read the Bible. It doesn't get any more clear than that. Verse nine, for in him, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. For all the pagan religions at that time, it'd be easy for them to believe that there is a demigod a half God, half man. He's empowered some of the time. They could believe in that. But this isn't what Jesus is. Jesus is 100% God. The fullness of deity dwells bodily in human form. And there's this word, which I think is so phenomenal. I think about it a lot. It's called palingenesia. It only comes up two times in the Bible. And what it means is new genesis. And when I broke my leg, they had to cut me open they had to put a plate and seven screws and then it fixed it, right? Like I can walk around. I can't jump yet, but I'm getting close, but it's fixed. Like you would say my leg is fixed and in, in a, a year I'll be walking around like I'm healed, but there will always permanently be a little bit of damage in there, right? There will always, always, always be a little bit of damage. It'll never heal totally. You and I 
are going to go things in life that's going to damage us, whether it be physical or emotional or spiritual, and it's going to scar us, and it's going to somehow affect us, and we, it can get fixed here on earth. It can get better, but there's always going to be that residual. There's always going to be that wounding. There's always going to be something there. Palingenesia means this, that you and I, when we get to heaven, we get brand new bodies, and it's not that it's going to be oh, you got a plate in there. It's going to be like it never, ever happened. Everything that's evil, palingenesis means everything that's evil will become untrue. So it'd be, did Justin break his leg? No, that's false. It'd be untrue. It's not true anymore. The one body in all of heaven for all of eternity that, that will have scars on it is Jesus's. He sits in heaven right now in the same body that he died in with scars on his hands, it will be the only body in heaven that's wounded. And as we look at Jesus, we'll see him as a lamb having just been slain, seeing what our sin did to our God, seeing what our God's love for us did to him forever. There are religions that push this, the, the, the body is evil, the material world is impure. And Jesus says, no, I'll live in a material body for eternity with my people. It's phenomenal. Verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Who's the head? Jesus. So who gets to make the rules? Jesus. So who gets to decide how he's worshipped? Jesus. Not the synagogues. Not the people who come to town and say you have to do these things. It's Jesus. Jesus gets to decide. It's like in John chapter four, Jesus walks up to the woman at the well. He's talking to her about her life and he's trying to offer her living water and she tries to distract him. And she says, well, hey, your people say that you should worship in that temple and my people say we should worship in that temple. So what do you say? And Jesus goes, yeah, you don't have to worry about temples. There's a time coming where the true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. That's going to be more about in here and less about out there. Jesus gets to decide how he's worshiped. We don't get to decide. Jesus does. He's the head. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is one of my, I mean, I work with middle schoolers. This is one of my favorite things. Like, it's sad. But so Paul's writing this letter after he writes Galatians, because there's an issue in Galatians where teachers had come through saying, oh, it's good that you're saved. It's good that you know Jesus. But if you're gonna be marked as God's people, you got to be marked as God's people. And so the men had to get circumcised. I just imagine there's this Gentile guy who has accept Jesus as king. He's all in. And he goes, if that's how it's got to be, it's how it's got to be. It happens. He comes limping into church the next day. And Paul's letter's there. Hey, we got a letter from the apostle Paul. Wow, this is amazing. He's actually seen Jesus. Oh my gosh. And they read down, they're reading. They go, hey, you don't have to get circumcised. And there's one dude sitting in church going, what? Are you kidding me? I think that's funny. But <laughs> it's terrible. But Paul's getting ahead of it right here saying, you don't need to get circumcised. You've been circumcised in Christ. Here's what he's saying. 
It's not about taking off a little bit of your flesh and putting it away, saying, I'm God's person. If you're following Jesus, it's about taking off all of the flesh. It's a whole lifestyle change. It's all of my habits, all of my desires, all of my character, the way that I talk to my employees, my spouse, my employer, the people that I'm responsible for, the people I'm responsible to, the way that I do everything is the way that Jesus would have me do it. It's not about me. It's about what God would have me do. The the idea behind the gospel is that your king has come. It's crazy. If you look at Mark chapter one, I love that we're going through Mark on Sundays because it just goes so quick. And so what you get in Mark chapter one is Jesus. He shows up on the scene. He's very briefly doing some things. It's the first chapter of Mark. And it's the first thing Jesus says is this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus hasn't spoken yet. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But we're in Mark chapter one. What is the gospel? The gospel is that your king has come, that the one who's actually in charge, the one who moves the entire universe by his will has come to call you his people and it's time to respond to him and follow him. And when Jesus gives his life for you and for me, the expectation is that we would then go and do what Jesus would do in our community, that we're called to be rooted in him and walk in him. We're supposed to walk out how Jesus would walk out life, abounding in thanksgiving, being incredibly thankful people because our king has not only come, but he's purchased us and he's called us and he's redeemed us and he's got great plans for us. We've got to be thankful people with that. In verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Every single one. There's not one missing. There's not one more work that has to be done. God is never shocked or surprised. He goes, oh, what did Justin do today? Okay, I didn't expect that one. We're gonna have to figure something out. Justin's gonna have to go and whip himself on the back to fix that one. That's not, nope. He's forgiven us of all our trespasses. God does not need you to punish yourself because of your sins and your failures. It was poured out on Jesus. There are things that we do that we need to be held responsible for and people and God will hold us responsible for them, but Jesus has paid the debt for it. And so the consequences of our actions are our own, but Jesus has paid the price. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In ancient times, in old civilizations, if you were at war with a neighboring country, you would go out, you'd be at war. If you were victorious, you would conquer them and you'd bring back home all of the spoils of war. You'd bring back all the gold that you could bring. You'd bring back any good thing in the field. You would bring back a line of prisoners And at the end of that line of prisoners, you would have the enemy nation's king. You'd bring them all into your city. There'd be a big celebration. And then you would ceremoniously execute the king of that enemy nation to prove we are in charge here. We have overcome them. We are victorious. 
So Rome develops that. Rome is known for that. And one of the big things they would do is they used crucifixion as their big means for do not follow these people. Do not follow this king or you'll end up like this person. It was developed by the Persians. It was perfected by the Romans. And so when the rulers, when the authorities, when they put on trial Jesus and Jesus claims to be king, Rome does what they would do to any king. Well, we'll just crucify him. And crucifixion isn't this thing like you have pictures where crosses weigh 20 feet up high in the air. Crucifixion was, it was low. The crosses were down low to the ground so that people could walk up to them and spit in their face and yell things at them and scream at them and get real aggressive with them. It was the number one most brutal form of torture and shame and humiliation. So when you had a neighboring king or a philosopher or or a person who was causing problems, a terrorist on that cross, you would say to all the people who might become followers of him, if you follow this man, you will end up like this man. It was a huge way to turn away any sort of violence. I mean, that's how come they have the, the Pax Romana. The Romans government could guarantee that you can walk from city to city and not be harassed by thieves or robbers because we'll handle it and we will line the road with crosses. So the rulers and the authorities, they get Jesus who's claiming to be king. They even put on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, and they hang him up and they watch him die. And God says in that moment where Rome would say, don't follow this man or you'll end up like him. We're victorious. It's that moment that God says, that's when he dismantled the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Isn't that fascinating? That God takes the weak things of this world to make himself strong, that God takes the things that we would say are failures, that God takes the things that we say can't be overcome, that can't be healed, and God says, actually, in that, I can move and be victorious and prove who I am. It's phenomenal who our God is. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. Verse 16, therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Just like if you ever go, I was just in Brookings, and if you are trying to get warm, you've been in the water. And you come out of the water and it just, you, you see blue sky, there should be sun, but there's just a shadow because there's this giant rock in the way. That's what Jesus is. The best of this world, the best festival, the best party that we could put on, the best this world has to offer is a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the rock is Christ. That all the best things of this world is like being passed through the lens of Jesus. And if we could just get to Jesus and see what he's got for us, It's greater than anything this world could ever imagine or throw at us. The substance belongs to Christ. And so they're saying, let no one disqualify you, verse 18, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. He's saying, don't allow people to judge you for not participating in festivals, 
or this or taking the Sabbath on whatever day the Sabbath they declare should be on. Let no one disqualify you by saying, well, you didn't have a spiritual enough experience. That's the last part. We're talking about the worship of angels. You didn't have the right experience, man. I don't know if you're really saved. That's not how it works. It's not experiential. It's do you believe Jesus is king and did God raise him from the dead? That's it. Then you're saved. It's not the festivals you go to. It's not the traditions that you decide to be a part of. It's not the way you pray or the tools you use to pray. It's not the meditations you do. Though all of those are good things, it's not what saves you. It's not what makes you saved. It's really funny. I kind of pick on them, but I, I, I really can't handle rules for the sake of rules. And what happened in the Jewish religion is they started developing rules for the sake of rules because they don't want to sin. So we're going to make it so that no one can sin. But there's always loopholes in rules that just build on rules and rules and rules. There's always loopholes. If you don't believe me, look at our tax system. All right. There are loopholes if you know how to find them. And one of the big ones is this. On the Sabbath, you can only travel a certain distance from your home, max. And so in Jesus's time, some people would take rope on a string and then they would draw a big circle from the perimeter of, or the, the, the middle of where their house would be so that they could go, I can go that far on Sabbath day. That's all the traveling I could do. Unless you're on a boat. Because when you're in water, there's drifting that happens that's not your fault, that you can't control. It's very hard to measure distance on a body of water. So it doesn't count if you're over a body of water. Do you hear how that, pl- that plays out? I'm not joking. I'm not making this up. There are people who are devout Jewish people who will put a bottle of water under the front seat of their car because they're traveling over a body of water. It doesn't count. I'm not joking. That's for real. And what's so funny about that is if you believe, if you actually believe that, do you see how you totally miss the heart and you miss God because you're saying, I've tricked you, God, and God's in heaven going, dang it. Didn't see that one coming. Shoot, they got me. It's just so silly. It's like, we know more than God. No way. That's just funny to me. So don't let anyone condemn you for the things that they're saying. No, this is how it is. You have to go to these traditions. You have to go to these places. You have to have this experience. There's this rules on top of rules on top of rules. Jesus is saying, Paul is saying, Jesus doesn't require that. You're not trying to trick God. You're not trying to force God to give you favor. He's already poured out his favor on you. The Bible says that man knows no greater love than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus did not lay his life down for his friends. He laid his life down for his enemies, for the people who were actively betraying him and mocking him and yelling at him and humiliating him and shaming him, murdering him. Jesus laid down his life for those people for you and for me. That's not about the things that we do. It's about everything that Jesus did. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value 
in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul was a huge dude in the circles of the Pharisees. He was established. He was well-known. He refrained from doing the things he wasn't supposed to do. He actively engaged in the things that he was supposed to do. He was someone that other people would look to and say to their kids, I hope you turn out like him one day. That's who Paul is. And Paul, knowing Jesus now, having received him as Lord, having walked in him in the freedom and in the life that Jesus gives, he says, why are you listening to people who say, don't handle that? Don't taste that. Don't touch that. There is law after law after law after law about things that you can taste, can't eat, can't touch, can't handle in the Torah. So for Paul, who used to be the, one of the big Pharisees, to now go on this saying, go, why are you responding to that? Is showing a huge paradigm shift, doesn't doesn't it? Everything has changed now. All of that stuff, not that it's bad, not that it's wrong, but it's completed. He's not throwing it out saying, hey, you you don't even have to read that old stuff anymore. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying Jesus is the key that unlocks it. Jesus is the one who has fulfilled it. Jesus is the one who has done it. You don't have to worry about that stuff anymore because Jesus has completed that work and now he's got a new life, a new kingdom, new expectations for you. He's got new body. He's got a new man for you to put on and to walk out day by day in. So it's like the Israelites where they had this box. It was all good things. But we have to remember, it's not about the box. There are things going on in our life right now that are good things, that we look forward to. Once I get that thing, things are going to be better. If I don't have that thing, people are going to think less of me. People are going to think little of me. I'm going to lose my significance. I'm going to lose my value. I I hope I get that promotion. I hope I end up in that relationship. I hope I end up getting that car. Whatever it is, there's these boxes we can hold on to saying, this is what's going to make me great. This is going to make me important. Or this is what saves me. What saves me is the way that I don't listen to those things or I don't watch those movies. That's what makes Jesus love me. No, it's not about the box. We have to remember that. Whenever someone tries to make it about the box, you remember it's not about the box. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He unlocks all of scripture. And if whatever's being shared with me about my faith in Jesus doesn't immediately come back and point to Jesus, I go, ah, that sounds like a box. It's not about the box. So Jesus, we're so thankful that we are people who are called by a king, who have been purchased by our king, who are known by our king, that our king has seen our weakness and our failures and our hurtings and our flaws and our suffering and knows us and has still chosen to call us. I'm thankful that we have a king who understands suffering. No other religion has a God that understands suffering, who understands the pain of losing a son, who understands the pain of being betrayed. But we have a God that we can come to in our time of need, approach boldly the throne, and say, God, I need you, I need help, and who is always eager to respond, yes and amen. So Jesus, we love you. We pray that we focus our week this day on you. It's in your name we pray, amen. God bless you guys.